You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today I'm taking you inside the family office of my friend, Neil Patel, who is 37 years old. And if you're watching or listening to this, you may wonder, how does a 37-year-old have his own family office? And Neil, normally I ask guests to introduce themselves, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to introduce you myself because I, I love this intro that I wrote out in my notes. Neil Patel is a New York Times bestselling author. The Wall Street Journal calls him a top influencer on the web. Forbes says he's one of the top 10 marketers and Entrepreneur Magazine said he created one of the 100 most brilliant companies. I'm not done. Neil was recognized as a top 100 entrepreneur under the age of 30 by President Obama and a top 100 entrepreneur under the age of 35 by the United Nations. Neil, that is, that's got to be the all-time best introduction on my show. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> I just had to read that. And to let my listeners and viewers in on this, I met Neil, I want to say it was back in 2006. So yeah, maybe like kind of at a conference. Yeah, we're dating both of ourselves here. I'm thinking, how old was I then? I was whatever. I was 23 or 24, and you're a couple years younger than me. And the reason I loved reading that intro, I feel like when I met you, it was at a marketing conference. You were kind of like the new kid on the block, if I can say that. And then yeah. a, a year went by, and like at the next marketing conference, I saw you. You were already huge, and I remember thinking even then. Like, what the heck is going on with this guy? <laughs> and back then, you used to work for Patrick, right? Yep. I worked for Patrick Gavin. That's right. Yep. That, and he was it Texting Gads or Position One? I forgot what the company name was oh, back then. He, he has had so many companies that I was involved with. And uh, honestly, I learned so much about entrepreneurship and private equity from Patrick. Yeah. yeah. Right, that's right. He likes raising money when, for his deals. And then he, uh, he tends to flip to private equity and then flip again. And yeah, good for him. He, yeah, he's very, Patrick is, for me, was a great role model. And I just, I learned a lot from him implicitly just by watching. I've also learned a lot from you, Neil. Like as we discussed before I clicked record, I stalk you on social media just because I want to kind of soak up, you know, how, how you do things. I, I, I think that's sometimes the best way to learn. Like you can Google how to do marketing you know, and get tips, but you can also just watch people that do it well and like, see what kind of content marketing they do. How did you get your start though? So that we're, we're going backwards now yeah. back to the beginning. Walk us through those first couple of years of, of your career. So my first couple of years of career and similar to you, I started really young. So there really wasn't any corporate jobs. I, I started when I was 16. So there really wasn't any corporate jobs, but um, I started doing creating websites, getting traffic, got good at it. Wasn't good at making money, was just good at getting traffic to a website, right? More people that go to a website, more likely to make money. Although I, I couldn't figure out the money portion. And uh, <laughs> eventually I got really good at the traffic part, frustrated about the rest. So I would call every day I got home from school, I would call all the people that were placing ads on Google because you could see if it was labeled like a sponsored or paid ads. I don't know what the verbiage that they used back then. Mm -hmm. And I'll call them, they're like, I'll do marketing for free. I'll get you traffic. If I get you traffic, pay me. If I don't, 
don't pay me. It wasn't really like a guarantee pitch. It was more so like, if you're happy, pay me. If you're not, don't. When you're a little kid, you're, you're wasting hours watching TV or playing basketball. So I'd waste hours on websites. Most people ended up paying me. Uh, got a good start there. Built an agency. The agency started making a few million bucks when I was a kid. But it crashed really hard in 2008 during the financial crisis, right? With all the subprime mortgages and stuff like that. But luckily, before the crash, a few years before that, I started creating software and I created an analytics company. And during the 2008 crash, the analytics company was continually growing month over month. It didn't really see any pullback. And was this, was this Crazy Egg or Kiss Metric? This was Crazy Egg. Okay. So then I shifted resources. And I didn't shift it by choice. I, sh I shifted by more so had no choice uh, because the agency was continually declining in revenue and profitability and the software company was growing. So stopped doing agency work, kept doing software. Uh, the software companies, I think Crazy Egg is like 16 years old now. We still have it. But when businesses just get old and if you create a good enough product or good enough service, you don't have to be the best. It kind of just grows through word of mouth. Uh, if you do it long enough and continually adapt and listen to the market and give them what they want. Uh, it has to be good, though. You're not going to grow by word of mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, you, right? you have to have a create good product or good service. And you have to continually adapt and keep up with the competition. But that's worked out well for us. And some of it did really well. And uh, overall, the winners made up for the losers plus more. And then my latest company, NP Digital got back into that space because we were just getting so many leads and had fun time doing that. I think we're now at 750 employees. I think we'll wow. be maybe 1,000 by the end of next year. Only, um, so only, a, only really 750 fast. employees, Neil? I mean, that's huge. Our, comp our competition has like, some of them have like 60,000 or 100,000 employees, right? So we still feel really tiny. Wow. Wow. So, you know, so many, we're talking about your family office today and so many family offices do actually have their genesis, not only in entrepreneurship, but in that software or technology world where you have an entrepreneur who builds up a successful company in software technology or some kind of startup and then has a liquidity event. And that liquidity event is the, you know, the genesis or, or the external event that leads to the creation of the family office. So for you... Obviously, you're, you know, earning a lot of income, having a lot of success early in your life in your 20s. Was there a liquidity event like like yeah, looking back? Wasn't. So, so for you, but small liquidity here and there. I've been doing angel investing for 16 years now. So I've had some wins from that and then just kept recycling the money. Uh, I've been at LP and a lot of angel funds, then venture funds and private equity funds. And then again, you recycle the money. Mm -hmm. And then my businesses spit off millions a month in free cash flow. So when you're making millions and millions a month, it adds up. I'm 37, but when you've been making that for a while, you kind of have a lot of money to invest over time, right? So then just parking, like how many homes you're going to buy? I'm in a rental right now. I was telling my wife, I'm like, you know, the ideal thing to do is just never buy any homes or real estate. Um, we do have homes, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much we have in homes, but let's call it 20 to $30 million liquid in real estate, right? That 
is our equity value cash and real estate and bought it all recently. So it's pretty much cash. There's no gains really. Um, but I was telling my wife, I'm like, you know, renting a house for 20, 30 grand a month, whatever you want is so much cheaper than just buying. Because even if you make 10, 15% on the money, you know, rent doesn't cost that much. And everyone's like, oh, your home and real estate goes up in value over time. And I'm like, I made more money in the stock market or angel investments and entrepreneurship than I ever have in real estate. I've done quite a bit of real estate. Uh, I just hate it as an investment class. It's illiquid, you know, it's a pain to manage and the returns suck compared to a lot of the other asset classes, but it is steady. Yeah. And you know, well, Neil, I'm not going to, it's hard to argue with a guy who says that, you know, I'm earning several million a month and I have trouble deploying it fast enough. Hard to argue with that, but I would say real estate, I think can be a good investment, but what you're pointing out, the difference between I'm buying homes for myself and treating those in as an investment Bingo. versus I'm investing as an LP or co-GP or whatever in an external fund. That's a, it's a fundamentally different animal, right? It, it, it is. And it's how do you put a price tag on having a home that uh, you like, right? And the reason I don't know how much I've put in a home is we're building a home here in Vegas, hence I'm in a rental. It's almost done. And then we're building one in Beverly Hills. And I don't really know how much money I'm in because every month you get bills and then you just pay your bills, right? Uh, I have a rough ballpark, but either way, I look at it and it's like, one, you don't need two homes. Two, you don't need you know, homes that are that expensive. Three, it's just cheaper to rent because when you start parking into a home that you're living, it's not really an investment anymore. You're living. You can say whatever the gains are, it doesn't matter. You're still living in that. So you're not realizing the gains. While on the flip side, just putting it in the S&P, let's say it clocks 9% a year compounded, it's just better because you can take the gains and start living off a portion of it versus having your money tied up in real estate. I could also start getting mortgages and stuff like that, although the rates are really expensive right now, but um, just not a fan of real estate for living in and buying it. I don't mind real estate as an investment class. Still not, I still don't prefer it. I still prefer tech. Uh, like a great example is, is we bought a business last year in February for 8.6. Right now, conservatively, made some changes to it, uh, added it into one of my businesses as a tuck-in. And I probably were conservatively in this bad market 20. So like I look oh. at that as like, I'm not going to make those kind of returns on real estate, right? But we've been able to rinse and repeat tuck-ins, investments, and stuff like that when we have expertise. So that already I'm pulling out this theme, which, you know, I talk with a lot of family offices. And to me, this is a recurring theme. DJ Van Curren says, if you know one family office, you know one family office, right? And a lot of times when you look at the patriarch and uh, it's funny, Neil, to call you the patriarch, but you're the patriarch of your family office, right? Um, a patriarch oftentimes uh, or matriarch, a family office will be have an investment philosophy that reflects the skills, personality, life experience, career experience of that patriarch or matriarch. So you have, you've made, you've generated enormous income and enormous success in marketing and technology. So it sounds to me like that's kind of a theme in your family office then is, and why wouldn't it be? Because you have expertise, you have access to deal flow, you have connections and insights in those sectors, right? 
That's right. I, I literally invest in what I know. Like a great example of this is uh, my buddy, Andy, he created a venture fund called Unlock, I think, Venture Partners. I call it the Andy Lou Fund. I don't really know the fund name. I think it's Unlock. And uh, I did angel deals with them and a ton of them, ton of them over time. And I believe if I'm not mistaken, I could be quoting inaccurately here, but the numbers are round here from the last time I had a conversation with him. His cash return as an angel investor, not paper returns, forget paper returns. Everyone talks about paper returns. What really matters is what your cash returns and what you're seeing in your bank account. And it takes a while with angel investing, but it's around 40% a year, which was amazing. Even if you drop it down, let's say he's not having as good of a year and it's dropped down the average to 30, right? So I think he did like something like 90 plus deals. I was co-investing in a lot of the deals. I don't know how many, but let's take a guess around maybe 10 deals. And I had good track record with him doing the diligence and him hitting me up, be like, hey, Neil, do you want to put it in a check? And I'm like, yeah, sounds good. Right. And that's typically what I look for because I don't want to go through the legal docs or anything like that. You want someone else to lead and figure out the deals and you just want to uh, ride along the, you know, ride along the journey with them. Mm-hmm. and give them checks. And I look for people with really amazing, I look for people with really amazing track records because then, you know, you don't really have much to lose there. And yeah, maybe not every single deal works out. Some work, some don't, but it's a numbers game. And I did really well with my angel investments with him. And then he was just like, yeah, I'm going to do a fund. And I was like, yeah, sounds good. You know, I'm in, and I don't know what I put into very first fund. This was a long time ago, maybe like 250 grand. Uh, it was a small fund, so I couldn't put in too much. I technically I could have, but typically as an investor, you don't want to be a really big portion of someone's capital, right? You don't want to be the sole person. You want them to have money from a lot of people. And then his second fund, it grew a little bit in size. It was still small. Um, I think I put in a million bucks in his second fund. But yeah, he's he's done a really good job. And I just look for people who have continually done really, really well. And I just keep betting on the same person over and over again. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense. I mean, it's another theme from the family office world. And it, regardless of sector or area of focus, whether it's real estate, venture capital, private equity, you know, family offices, they like long-term partners. They're very collaborative at some point you know, the, an issue, uh, if you can call it an issue, it's not a problem, but an issue is you need to start recycling capital. And we'll get to that later, Neil, but I, I kind of want to rewind a little bit. So you're in this ramp up in your twenties, you're earning tremendous income. Could, do you mind sharing like what age at which you were actually an accredited investor and, and you were like, I'm, I'm now able to invest in these kind of private equity deals, private funds, kind of where you started your journey yeah. with LP. Maybe 20, 21, 19, somewhere around there. I would probably so say probably 20, 21. That's pretty young. Okay. So you started doing alternative investing at age 20 and 21, kind of. Kind yeah, of- yeah. 21 makes sense. I, I've been an angel investor for more than 16 years. So 20, 21, somewhere around there. I'm almost 38. So for you, it was kind of your entrepreneur by day and then your your income is growing and then you're basically recycling your income into a variety of investments, including private investments, doing that by night or kind of in, in parallel with your entrepreneurship. So, you know- well, what, well, Not even by night. Here was the key to my success as an alternative investor. I still spend almost all my time as an entrepreneur. So many of my friends are entrepreneurs who are older than me, right? Like 
we both know Patrick Evan. He's older. Now, I've never done a deal with him, but they're like that age. I don't know how old Patrick is, but I'm guessing he's at least 10 years older than us, right? Oh, maybe five, maybe five. He just he just has uh, he looks very wise and distinguished, but he's a young guy. Okay, so most of my friends and I haven't seen him in a very, very he's got it. You know what, Neil? He's got a great beard. I think maybe just having a great beard makes you look. But no, I think I think Pat is is maybe three or four years older than me. So five or six years older than you. But I, I get it. And, and so, yeah. yeah, but but most of my friends are like in that 50 plus range. Okay, right. So they're at the tail end of entrepreneurship. They've been investing in ages. So one, I've invested in a lot of their companies and made money from that. Two, as they do angel investments, they'll be like, hey, we're looking to fill up this round. I put my money in. Uh, can you throw in some money? It's a good deal. And with a lot of them, because I've known them for so long, I don't really get that much details of the company. It'll be like five minutes or like just an email with a few paragraphs. And I'm like, <laughs> sounds good. And I usually just ask them, how much are you in? Right? Because I usually know some of my friends' net worth. So based on that, I can figure out, all right, if if like someone's putting in 25 grand and they're worth a half a billion dollars, they got whatever. Right. And Neil, Neil, can I stop you there and just thank you for being honest? Because, you know, I'm a big proponent of due diligence and I encourage LPs to do diligence. I do due diligence, but in my experience, most LPs don't do due diligence or, (laughs) or their due diligence process kind of is like yours. It's more gut feel relationship, trust of the other party. I just want to thank you for just like being honest about that, like not BSing me and saying, well, I put them through a due diligence process when you're like, no, it's based on relationship and trust. Yeah. Like if some, one of my buddies has a similar net worth and they're like, oh, I'm in $3 million. I really believe in this. I spent, you know, months and months. I'm like, yeah. okay, cool. And I don't even have to get that much in detail. The moment they tell me they're in $3 million and I know how much they have roughly, uh, it's easy, right? I'm like, well, if you have someone number, you put three million. All right, here's a million or two million dollar check because they wouldn't have put that much money in it unless they believe in it. Now, skin it in the game, be- skin in the game. Yeah. You're asking, what's your skin in the game? And that's that's yes. a big mover for you. It's usually the biggest mover. And here's the thing: the skin in the game is how much skin in the game do they have percentage wise, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if they're worth a hundred billion dollars, I'm making up that number. I don't have any friends who are worth a hundred billion, <laughs> and they put in a million dollars. It's like me putting in fifty cents or a penny in something, right, or a dollar, whatever the ratio would be. That that doesn't mean anything to me. But most of my friends have been entrepreneurs for a long time and investors for a very long time, and we all share a lot of the deals. So I'm just writing checks. And uh, over time, it's added up and it's the easiest way I found my deals. And when I put money in with my friends, if they lose my money, it's not like I get off. The key is not to be upset that the deal went south because a lot of them will. The key is to know, hey, when you do a lot of these deals or you're putting your money in, let me know because this is a numbers game, right? And the ones that hit usually hit hard. Um, but there's different asset classes as well. I tend to focus a lot on tech. Uh, when my tech friends is, like tech is going to have more, you know, unicorns. Like in real estate, you're yes. more going to you put your money in, you get two x back. Uh, you know, a deal goes bad, you might get one x back. You know, sometimes you get nothing. But like real estate, there's going to be like you're not going to. It's hard to lose it in real estate. It's hard to have a zero. 
But yeah, people, well, yeah, well, people have found a way, Neil. Yeah, using leverage, <laughs> you can find a way. Trust me. But there's, no, there's you're, you're right. You could have a zero, but typically, if you buy a property, and let's say you're just buying it with cash to keep it simple for ten million dollars with a group of people in a bad economy, it's hard for them to go from ten million to zero. Yeah. Right with the mortgage and stuff, yes, you could lose your money and be wiped out. But typically, if you're buying the whole thing outright. With real estate, just generally speaking, unlike tech, it's very rare for something to go up from like a hundred million and then to zero, which but, but tech tech you have the power law distribution, which is where right. some of these are unicorns, you know, one hundred x or one thousand x returns, and then you you're much more you're you're less flapped by you know the strikeouts. It's a little bit more like baseball, right? Where even yes. A great hitter is is batting three hundred, and you're happy. You're like, well, that, this guy's a great hitter if he's batting three hundred. So, to to kind of continue on this journey, though, so you're in your twenties, you're earning more income, your businesses are very successful. You're take, you know, you're starting to earn millions a month, or, or 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 at least a year, eventually per month, and you're recycling this money with some of your entrepreneur friends that you trust into angel investments, into private deals into you know venture capital tech type investments and other private investments at what point you know was there a point i guess where it all just got to be like too much like where you're getting you know 25 50 k ones every year and where you kind of go well wait a minute i need to professionalize this or i, I guess what was the kind of that first milestone or, or was there a point where you were like i, I need an advisor or i need a full-time cpa or the, the the first part was I was doing a lot of these like 25 grand checks because that's where I started off as an angel. I think mm -hmm. I had maybe one or two at 12 and a half or somewhere small like that. But I was starting off typically at 25, then I started increasing to 50 and then 100. And then it kept growing from there. Then I got a bookkeeper named Beth. And Beth would just keep track of it because I would have a spreadsheet of here's the investment I made. You know, here's uh, when it sells and it would just be gain or loss. And it started getting messy after a time, a, a bit. And then I started doing, and then I realized this is a lot of work to start going through all these angel deals. So then I started writing bigger and bigger checks, doing less of them. And then I started just becoming an LP because I had friends who were doing a lot of them. And I would try to push them like my buddy Andy. I'm like, one day you should create a fund. And he sold his first company to, I think it was called Aquaniv which then Aquanib got bought out by Microsoft. That was, I think, a multi-billion dollar acquisition. His portion wasn't, but he still did really well for his investors. And then his second company sold to, I believe it was Vizio, the TV company. So then he had a good track record there. He had a better track record as an angel investor. And I'm like, dude, you should just create a fund. I'm tired of writing all these checks. Like, it's just easier to be like, here's a lump sum. Just go and do whatever you want. Give me one K1, dude. Don't give me 20 <laughs> K1s, right? And, and it's a pain in the butt, right? Like yeah. I'm doing my taxes literally this week and I won't get them done. But like, I don't know how many K1s I sent my guy, but I think I probably sent him 50 to 60 K1s. No joke, mm -hmm. right? Like I have a lot of K1s. Like I'm just sending tons and tons of them. And uh, eventually you want to consolidate and have less and less. But, you know, the amount of documents I sent him for like interest and 1099s and all this kind of stuff, the wages and W-2s or whatever they're all called, I probably sent him over 100 plus documents of investments and gains and losses. And so, yeah, like, so now now we're kind of getting I, I think now we're kind of transforming to the present day, which speaks to actually my next question was going to be so like I kind of get it. 
you're making these smaller investments. You had a friend, you had, you said, Hey, just create a fund. I'll make a bigger investment. Now you're kind of in the middle of this evolution and yes. you, you, you get a little older into your thirties, you're more mature, you know, you're married, starting a family, all this stuff. And, and now, you know, you, you mentioned your income numbers. Now you're just, you're generating a, a lot of income and, and it's like, investing the income and recycling it as investments come to fruition and liquidate. At what point did you say, you know what, I really need a family office. I need something more structured to just manage our family wealth, our, our legacy wealth, our generational wealth. Yeah. So it, it was never a moment where I thought like, Hey, I need to actually create a family office. And I don't really consider it a family office, even though you can say it's fractional. Uh, it was more so hey, I need help and I need people to help me with some of these tasks, like the taxes. And there was some legal stuff and I have tons of trust and mm -hmm. grantor trust and dynasty trust. And like, is this all starting to add up? And then it just becomes a real headache from a management perspective. Yeah. And then my wife manages uh, our philanthropic arm and there's not really an arm. She just we, I call it a tear factor. Me and my friends, we joke around. We call it a tear factor. The more my wife cries, the more she donates based <laughs> on the foundation pitching her. And I'm very logical, you know, like there's food banks and all this kind of stuff. And my wife focuses on a lot of like uh, things for uh, children, like education, uh, poverty and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm more like, well, we're funding this program to help fight uh, poverty for children. What were the stats and the data on how many less children went hungry because of our donations and all the donations they got? Mm -hmm. And my wife more looks at it. I was like, well, you can't think like that. You know, like they're making like a Well, you know, Neil, I, my like, experience, I you need, okay, in a family office, this is actually a discussion I had with uh, Danny Roisman, who manages a family office for a lot of ultra high net worth investors. You kind of need both in a family office, the right brain and the left brain. And and managing managing the money and then to your point the philanthropic arm, you need the the more creative and human human centered heart centered stuff because that's that's the heartbeat of a family. Families don't run on dollars and cents or even right. logic. Like let's be no, honest, right. you know, you're families right. don't it run on logic, right? But but at the same time, you're an entrepreneur. You're numbers focused. You're very logical. I mean, obviously, you're a super intelligent guy. But my point is like it's not good or bad or better or worse. You kind of need a, a, a system or a way to organize it all and, and kind of get it all running and humming into so that you need external help. Right. And you said you don't consider it a family office. It might be, might be a multifamily office or shared family office or whatever. I might call it a family office just because it's a better podcast title. But so you, you know, you kind of mentioned you, you and your wife, you kind of have different roles, which is good, right? Complementarity. What kind of external help or what kind of structure do you use to kind of help guide you and to cut down on the headaches? Can I call them headaches involved with all this? I call them the, so I, we have a team. Let's just say there's one person that I talk to who deals with everything, right? And he deals with the headache. And then from there, he hires people and deals with everything from lawyers to accountants to uh, people who deal with trust to people who are analyzing some investments like stocks and keep, you know, our uh, angel investments, uh, things like that. 
Although I don't really deal well with people who are giving me angel deals or private equity deals. I like uh, more so doing them myself and being involved in that. Mm-hmm. I don't like dealing with a lot of the mundane stuff or dealing with stocks. Although I will do some of my own trades. Like I called up one of my guys and I'm like, what do you think about Fresh Republic? And this is when all the banks were crashing. And I remember the weekend, uh, right then and there, it was... The government said we're going to backstop some of these stocks, like uh, or, or uh, the banks. They were going to backstop SVB, and I forgot. I think there was one other that were going under. They're like, "Look, don't worry, you guys won't have to worry about your money." At that point, I was like, "All right, the government's going to bail out these banks." <laughs> and then J.P. Morgan did a deal with First Republic right then and there on the weekend announced. Well, I'm like, "Well, they don't need the money if the government is going to create this program that's going to give people the money in case they're short for some time and they don't have to liquidate, let's say their treasury or whatever it may be." So then in the morning, right when I wake up, I could already see uh the stocks and a lot of the bank stocks are just tanking. First Republic was getting hit one of the hardest. So then I remember right when the market opened, I was like, "Huh, a few minutes are going to buy, keep going lower and lower." And I remember it hit around 18 or 19 or something like that. And calling one of my guys, I was like, what do you think about buying some First Republic? And I'm not too risky. I won't do uh, tons of options and stuff like that. And I was just like, you know, I think people are overreacting. I'm not saying the company is actually worth 19 or 30 or whatever. It was a $100 company before. I'm not even saying it was worth five, but I'm like, it's just all going down based on emotion. Mm-hmm. And I was like, once people realize, like the consumer, that they don't need to go to all these banks and start pulling out their money, I believe that the market would rally just because a lot of it is sentiment, right? No one knows the financials of First Republic at the time. They're just reacting. and Like a bank run. It's a, the beginning. Yeah, of the- exactly. Yeah. So then I tried buying $3 million worth of shares at 19. I think I got a little bit under 900 grand got filled. And then the price when I started it kept going up and I was too cheap to pay. You were, prob- deal, you were probably moving the market. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if that amount of money. I don't think I was market. moving the market. <laughs> Only $3 million worth of shares is a lot. So I was just like, I was clicking buttons and I was just buying myself. And then at 19.5, I was like, oh, I can. And then I was just like, oh, I think this thing's going to go up. So then I increased, you know, it started going to like 19.8 five or eight, three. And I was trying to buy it at 19.8, you know, I was penny pinching and I shouldn't. And uh, I didn't get any more of a fill. And then I didn't sell it that day. The next day I sold it. I think I made it like around 1.4. I would have been happy if I got $3 million worth. And I could have bought more, but I also didn't want to buy too much of it because if I lost two, $3 million worth, it's not the end of the day. And I was willing to take the loss. Um, and I believed I was going to make something, how much I didn't know. But like 1.4 in 24 hours, right? Sold it the next day. Uh, uh and I think it was going to like 50 cash out. And then it started going down. And I'm like, oh, let me just sell this thing. I'm up enough. And uh, I didn't buy any more after, even when I kept going down lower. And then it went back up because at that time, you know, people are starting to trade. They're getting more data and all these financials. Maybe they're not releasing financials, but people are doing their own back in the napkin math on like, hey, what's happening? How much of their money is in treasuries or whatever? And people are trying to do their own calculations. I traded purely on emotions, not my emotions, but I knew the market was illogical on their trading on the first day. And I knew that it was going to, you're going to see crazy roller coasters. I was like, ah, there's an opportunity to day trade here. And I took it. 
and I didn't get too greedy. I could have made more money, um, but it was a good enough. Uh, so, so, so I hear you. You're you're opportunistic. I mean, you're an entrepreneur. You're an investor. You love technology, but you also you love ideas. You love you know the game. I could we could we call it the game, and and you now. I would I would call it a family office. You know, you have a manager who's delegating tasks to other experts. So you're interfacing with him. So he's taking right. a lot of this. But we in- split some of the costs, right? With other uh rich individuals, right? That's why I call it multifamily office. But sure. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's a shared family office or multifamily office. So who may I add, you know, you don't obviously I'm not asking for their names, but are these other individuals that you know through business that you you decided to do this together? Or, or how did that process? Start. Yeah. So the guy who I have helping me run a lot of stuff, uh, he was a finance guy and he did really well managing other people's money um, and started working with him. Okay. And so, so he has, and this he, has what he was pretty much doing in the past, right? So he did it both for himself uh, in which raising funds and deploying it. And then eventually he went into the family office route in which he was just like, hey, I'm going to just work with a lot of the rich families I met. And then, you know, said, all right, let's work together. And that's how it got set up. Because he's got like, it. hey, how about I alleviate some of your pain? At first, it wasn't called a family office. He's like, how about I al- alleviate some of your pain? It was a business model for him. Mm-hmm. He was like, hey, I'm going to create this and make some money by charging some rich families. He's like, how about I alleviate some of your pain? And then it just kept growing. And then he pretty much was just like, yeah, I have a service. Uh, you know, if you want a fractional family office, that's what he offers. So how is your ex- experience, you know, it is is working with this multifamily office? And, you know, it sounds like, you know, your your assets and you are are a big part of it. Um, it has it freed up a lot of time for you? I mean, has it, you know, it, it has, it doesn't make a ton of money. I'll be quite honest. I have better luck picking on my own than going with money managers. You know, there's a saying I always, uh, that one of my buddies told me a long, long time ago, if you work with money managers and wealth advisors, they won't make you rich. They help you stay rich. Mm-hmm. Right. So none of these guys get the returns that I want. That's why I still do some of my own trades, and that's why I'm pretty aggressive. Well, I've been mean, Neil family offices. I mean, this is this is known. They're they're focused on capital preservation. You are totally you're totally correct because you know a family office manager. You know the downside is way worse for you than the upside is good in the sense that if if you make you know twelve percent returns versus nine percent, yeah, your client's going to be happier, but but they're going to be happy if you make nine percent. With 9% returns a year, by the way, they had, what they keep trying to remind me is Neil, you know, if you lost all your money, how sad would you be? I'm like, yeah, I'd be bummed out. My life would really suck. And they're like, if we got you five, 7% returns, five to seven, and we're clocking way better than that. They're like, how much better would your life be if it's five to seven versus 12 or 20? There's no difference in lifestyle from flying to can buy a jet. Like there's no difference in lifestyle. Now there's certain things I can't do. Like I can't just go keep burning money on like, I can't just say, Hey, let me go buy a hundred million dollar house here, $50 million house there, plane there. Like I'm going to go broke, right? Like there is a limit to how much money I have because most, I have a good amount of cash, but most of my net worth is still tied up in my corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, if I sold them, sure. I can start buying bigger purchases like $100 million house there, 50 somewhere else, or jet and all that kind of stuff. 
But for you me, you don't want a jet, Neil. Nobody really wants a jet. The, the goal is you ride on other people's jets. Isn't that is that is the best thing you can do as a rich person to have a friend who has a jet versus having your own jet. Uh, and I have so many friends who have jets and then they complain, be like, man, you know, my microwave went out on my jet. It cost me 30 or $40,000 to replace this stupid thing. Or like, oh, I'm stuck in uh, O'Hare and it's really uh, snowing and they got They charge me like 20 grand to defrost my plane or like something like that. Like those kind of things would just really irk me and mm. I just can't do it. Um uh, so you're kind of you're kind of a minimalist. I mean, in your own way. I know you live minus the real estate. Minus the real estate. Like, still have a Honda Odyssey for a family car. Drive that around. My wife has a nicer car than me. Yeah, I was uh, gonna say, Neil. Neil, we gotta get you a Bentley or Ferrari or something. Come on, have a have a little. My wife has a Bentley. I, okay. I have a Maybach. I have a driver. Uh, I don't use them that often, but when I go to meetings, because I have a laptop table in the back. My buck just looks like a normal Mercedes. It's just a little bit longer. I have my iPad with Wi-Fi or uh, cell signal, and I just work in the back um, instead of dealing with traffic. I don't use that that often, but maybe like five, six times a week. But to me, that was worth it because I work too much. And when I would drive, I've, I get into too many car accidents, or I did when I was younger. So I tend not to drive too often. Uh, just more so mentally tormented by driving. Not that I'm I'm probably a decent driver, but still I like just, uh, too paranoid. And, uh, yeah, like I, I am a minimalist to some extent and I still want the returns. So I just keep going and going. And when I look at all these money managers that are like, I look at their stock returns versus my stock returns buy like HubSpot in the early days and Shopify and Google and, uh, Amazon and some of those not too early. Cause I'm not, uh, that old, but buying them early enough and just holding them like, well, my returns are better than your guys. And you guys try to do all these complex things and try trading or just buying the S&P. I'm like, I just buy companies like Apple that I believe in and I hold because I understand technology. And my biggest diversification into non-tech for money I manage personally, right? Not talking about the family office, but I manage personally. My only outside investment outside of tech was Disney because they got into streaming and eventually I ended up selling the Disney stock. But I'm all in tech. You know, some of my other guys do non-tech and I took a beating last year and they're like, see, this is why. But if I look at my average returns from when I got in, I'm crushing all these money managers. I'm not <laughs> saying like I'm better trader than Ray yeah. Dolly or anything. I have a small amount of money versus some of these guys are dealing with like a hundred plus billion, but just buying Apple stock back in the early days gives you amazing return or HubSpot stock. I don't really look at what did they do this quarter? I'm like, believe in the operators, believe in the business model, buy, don't look. And 10 years from now, you'll see what the stock's at. Totally. And, and Neil, one thing I love, everything you're saying is just, you you love the game. I mean, I can tell that you, you kind of, this passion that you have for entrepreneurship, you have that same passion for your investing. And it's, it's almost an entrepreneurial attitude to your investing too. It's, it's, you kind of know what you know. You know what you're passionate about: technology, marketing, software, these sorts of things. And you know you're not in the game to amass as many yachts or private jets or whatever. No, it's possible. I, I, we're going to end up donating almost all of it. Uh, we have money in trust for our children. It is uh, blind. I, th I think they call it blind trust, or they don't know about it. Whatever you want to call it, I think it's blind. Uh, one's a grantor trust. One's a dynasty trust the money's only there like if you got cancer and you can't pay for a treatment 
gladly pay for it. If you're on the street and you have no roof over your head, we'll gladly help you out. But if you have a job, you can figure it out on your own. Or mm -hmm. if you want to be a doctor and volunteer all your time in Africa and just help people in like these third world countries that have no money and no health system, that's that great. And you need money to survive, but you want to volunteer all the time. I will pay for your life in a normal life. So, right? so Neil, what you're talking about. And so this is, this is another, I think, common theme with family offices is, is you've, you're figuring out, maybe you have figured out how you transmit your values to the next generation, right? Because that can be a challenge for ultra high net worth investors, ultra high net worth families is you didn't start, you know, with a Maybach and a driver when you were 17 or however old you were when I met you, right? You, you had incredible work ethic and drive to succeed in life. And you want to make sure to pass on that value to, to, you know, your, your children and sometimes giving them too much wealth too early or with the wrong structure can actually impede your ability to pass on your, your values, right? Yeah. And, and for us, we believe they don't need it. Like if our kids want to buy a Ferrari, I don't care what place you are in life, you figure it out on your own. Or if you want to go take a vacation to Italy, go figure it out on your own. Now, if they're with me, I will gladly do it. Or another biased thing I have when it comes to wealth is, you know, we probably will retire in, we're from Southern California to Los Angeles, technically Orange County, but it's close enough to Los Angeles. So we, we have a home in Beverly Hills and not a crazy fancy, like hundred million dollar home or anything like that, but it's expensive enough and nice enough. And uh, let's say, you know, my kids, if I'm getting older and, you know, I can get them to live next to me, but they can't afford a house in Beverly Hills, I would gladly buy the house next door to me, if my kids live next to me and I get to see them grow up and their kids sure. and all that kind of stuff. So for certain things, I'll make a sacrifice, but it's like, for me, it's just like, if I'm going to live my life, I want to enjoy it and not enjoy it from like going on a yacht. I don't care for yachts or like even private aviation, you know, like I was going to New York, I could afford a private, uh, flight, but one of my buddies is raising, uh, money for kids in New Jersey for inner city you know, like um, a lot of the young kids there and even their parents, they don't even have money for things like toilet paper or feminine products and, you know, give them a hundred grand check. I'd rather spend a hundred grand doing that and go fly on JetBlue, lay flat, which cost me maybe a thousand, two thousand bucks and donate the money than, you know, have a convenience of saving a few hours and being in the private aviation, right? Like yeah. the money I just believe is just being wasted and it's also not the best for the environment. But yeah, I don't believe future generations of my kids need the money. I believe it's better to just donate everything. So, so, so you've set up your family office, you know, around your values, which makes sense. And I think that's the goal of every family office is to have that mission oriented and values oriented outlook. I know we're short on time, Neil, but kind of to, to zoom out a little bit and to think about your, you know, you have a very inspiring life story as an entrepreneur and kind of your journey where you know you built up these successful businesses and leading to this shared family office what what is there any lesson or or tips that you could give entrepreneurs that are more toward you know that they're more like the the 20 21 22 year old neil patel just getting started their businesses are beginning to be successful they're beginning to write those checks to angel investments or private equity funds or private real estate funds what advice do you give them 
to, to get to that next level of success? So there was a wise man in Seattle that gave me this feedback when I was first starting off. And he said, Neil, you don't need to figure this out. He's much older than me. His name is John. I'm not going to say his last name. And he invested in some telecoms and a few other things. And he told me, and at the time when I was, when he's giving me this advice, he was in his late fifties and I was in my early twenties. And he's like, Neil, you're, if you want to succeed in life, you're going to know a lot of successful people just ride our coattails. So, and he didn't mean it in a bad way to like leech or not provide value, but he was saying, if you know other successful people and your friends, ask them, ask them to include you in their deals. You'll learn along the way by just co-writing checks and you'll avoid a lot of the mistakes because they've been through this many times. And that's how I started. And it was a, a great lesson for me and it helped me avoid a lot of mistakes and it also helped me produce better returns. I love that, Neil. I think that's a great note to end on. I really appreciate you sharing your story of entrepreneurial success, but also your investing mindset. You've been so transparent about your process. I always love when a guest is honest. It's rare for us to have someone, you know, just share that whole story from the beginning all the way to the current day, how you manage your family office. So thanks again for joining the show today, Neil. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.